everyone, my name is Laura and I'm a first year biochemistry student and I'll be doing a reading for us today which comes from Mark 13. Um, this passage is about Jesus um, telling his disciples about his, um, well, what's going to happen in the destruction of the temple. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings and witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents, and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where where it does not belong, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world, until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And that, at that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happen, you know that it is near right at the door. 
Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Can you come out and take your report? Hello, everyone. Uh, we just might need just a brief moment to get us all set up. Now uh, it's set up. Okay, there we are. Okay, thank you. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Tom. I'm one of the staff with the Christian Union. Now, as we come to Mark chapter 13 today, it was probably obvious as we read it, this is not an easy chapter. Uh, there's enormous debate about whether this chapter is really all about the end of the world when Jesus comes back to judge, or whether it is about the destruction of Israel and the destruction of the temple, which took place in the year AD 70. But it's also a difficult chapter on an emotional level, because so much of what it describes is quite gruesome and disturbing. It's not a happy read. Now, I also want to admit up front that there's particular sections of Mark chapter 13 where I'm still a little bit unsure as to what it's talking about. Uh, however, there's lots of material in this chapter where I'm quite certain that it is in fact not talking about the second coming of Christ, but it is focused exclusively on the destruction of the temple. So I'm going to focus our time and attention more on that material, but it means that there's more of the chapter that will be left open for discussion and for you to think about yourselves. Now, as we go through the text and to see what it means, part of my aim is to show how the predictions that Christ made did in fact come true. And so we'll see some things that have been recorded for us by an ancient Jewish historian as uh, a historian by the name of Josephus, he was writing about 75 to 95 AD and himself was an eyewitness of many of the events that took place in Jerusalem. And so by reading his records, we can see how some of the things that Jesus described did in fact take place at that time. So first, let's turn to the Bible passage you have there in your outlines and we'll look at the setting. Please follow as I read from verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. 
Now, this kind of reaction, that would have been quite normal for a visitor to Jerusalem. It's worth remembering Jesus and his disciples were not from Jerusalem. They'd travelled down from Galilee. And they would have seen the temple before, but the temple was actually still being built. It was still undergoing massive renovations. So they may have seen new features that they had not seen previously. But even if everything they saw was the same as what they'd seen on previous occasions, the building was such a magnificent structure that it would be normal for people to just stand and marvel at just how large and how elaborate it was. It really was breathtaking. It was considered to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. Now again, our historian friend Josephus, he writes a description of the temple and he describes the whole front being completely coated in pure gold. Like that's a whole building coated in gold. And he said that when the sun shines on it, it was so bright, it was like the sun itself shining. So bright that nobody could even look at it. It was an astonishing, astonishing building. But the grandeur of the structure was not as important as what the temple itself represented. The temple is the dwelling place of God himself, where God lives among the people of Israel. And so it symbolized the special status of the Jews as God's people. And the temple was the place where God was to be worshipped. It was the only place where God could be worshipped and the only place where sacrifices could be offered. So this building means absolutely everything to the Jews. Their national pride and their relationship with God is all dependent upon this building. But now Jesus spoils the party. Have a look at verse 2. Jesus says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So Jesus and his disciples, they leave the city. They go to sit on the Mount of Olives, which is a great big hill right next to Jerusalem. And from there, they have a really close view of the temple. They can see it perfectly. They're looking right down on top of it. And then the disciples ask in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And so the whole speech that follows is Jesus' answer to that question. So Jesus has predicted Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. And soon, Israel is going to be wiped off the map. Their role as God's nation is about to come to an end. So now Jesus answers the question that the disciples have asked. And he gives them all these different signs, these precursors to warn them that the destruction is about to happen. And part of the reason Jesus gives them these warnings is because he does not want his followers, the Christians who are still living in Jerusalem, to get caught up in that destruction. So when you see these events taking place, you will know the time has come. Therefore, get out, flee from Jerusalem and run to safety before it's too late. 
Well, we see that as Jesus makes a prediction of the future, that he's really putting his credibility at stake. So come down to verses 30 and 31. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, in other words, this prediction will never pass away. It's a very strong way of wording that. Now, Jesus here is predicting the future destruction of Jerusalem and now insisting it will happen within this generation, within the lifetime of his disciples. So there's a lot at stake. If it does happen during the lifetime of the disciples, Jesus is vindicated. But if it does not, they can then write Jesus off as a false prophet. And so he stakes his credibility upon everything coming true within this time frame. Now, there are many people who interpret Mark 13 as being all about the end of the world, but this poses a problem for them because Jesus did not return and the worlds did not come to an end within the lifetime of the disciples. So that leaves you really with two options. Either Jesus was wrong, in which case he is a false prophet and we should all forget this whole Christianity thing, or Jesus is speaking truth and the events did take place in his generation. Now, given that the early generations of Christians preserved Mark, this book, they preserved this chapter, they clearly thought this chapter is a win for Jesus. Because he was indeed talking about events that did happen, exactly as he predicted. So what we're going to do now is look at what actually took place, a bit of the history. And I'll be greatly helped by the writings of Josephus as he describes the history of Israel, when the Roman armies destroyed the city and destroyed the temple in the year 70 AD. So we're going to look at some of the predictions that Jesus made and how they come true. So firstly, prediction number one. False messiahs will come doing great signs and wonders. Have a look down in verses 5 and 6. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. Now, come down further, down to verses 21 and 22. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, Jesus, at this point, is not talking about people coming just before the end of the world and saying, hey, everybody, I'm Jesus Christ, I'm back for a second time, you know, here I am. No, Jesus is talking about people who will come within the next few decades from when he made the prediction. It's people who will come to Israel and to Jerusalem and say, I am the promised Messiah, and if you follow me, I will lead you in conquest over the Romans and usher in the golden age for Israel and achieve our independence. 
as we look at the history, that is exactly what took place. The history books tell us the names of some of these false messiahs who gained great followings. Uh, One example is a guy named Thutis the Magician. Uh, Thutis, in roughly the year 45 AD, proclaimed himself to be a prophet. He gathered a huge crowd of Jewish followers, and he led them out to the Jordan River to kind of set up their camp out there. And Judas promised, sorry, Thutis promised, that he would deliver Israel from the Romans and from their oppression. And so no doubt his followers thought, this guy is our Messiah. But as they went out to have their gathering at the river, the Romans found out, sent in their armies and wiped out the lot of them. They chopped off Thutis's head and paraded it around the city. He turned out to be a false Messiah. We're told about another false messiah, this time a guy who came from Egypt, uh, whose name is not known. He claims to be a prophet, and he even gets a mention in the book of Acts, in chapter 21. He gathered an army of 30,000 men, and they gathered on the Mount of Olives, right next to Jerusalem. And he proclaimed that at his word, the city walls would fall down, and they could storm into the city, drive out the Romans, and liberate Israel. But he, too, was attacked by the Romans and killed, and his movement was dispersed. Now, this is just two examples I've given you, but there was many, many more. Josephus says, and I quote, The country was again filled with impostors who deluded the multitude. See, it happened exactly as Jesus foretold. Many false prophets and many false messiahs appeared And huge numbers of the Jews went after them and followed them. Now I want you to notice, then in verse 22. In verse 22, Jesus mentions that there will be many signs and wonders which will be used to deceive the people. Now again, Josephus actually records a number of signs and wonders that supposedly took place. And these false messiahs used these signs to gain their followings. Let me give you four examples, and warning, these are really weird. The first example, it was claimed that in the middle of the night, in the middle of the darkness, a huge light suddenly shone out of the temple, such that it was like daytime. In another instance, there was a crowd of people watching as the priest took a cow into the temple to sacrifice it, and apparently... The cow gave birth to a lamb. Strange. He also records an incident where the city gates, which are huge and heavy, normally requires 20 men to open it, just suddenly opened all by itself. And at this, a whole bunch of prophets went around saying, this is a sign of God opening the doors of happiness for Israel. And then perhaps the most astonishing of all the signs Josephus tells us whole crowds witnessed armies and chariots running about on the tops of the clouds. Now, this all sounds very strange and probably a bit suspicious. Now, regardless of whether you think such strange events might have actually taken place, what we do know from the history is that lots of people claimed to have seen great signs and wonders like these. And we know that many false prophets and false messiahs used 
these claims of such science to gain great followings for themselves. You see, it is exactly as Jesus predicted. Well, prediction number two. There will be great earthquakes and famines and wars. Follow with me from verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. Now, it's worth mentioning when Jesus says the end is yet to come, he's not talking of the end of the world. He is talking the end of Israel. Now, this prediction, again, it happened exactly as Jesus said. There are many records of earthquakes that did take place in Israel in those years. There was also a really large and devastating famine that swept across Judah. It's recorded in the book of Acts, as well as in the history of Josephus. And before the Roman armies came and attacked the city of Jerusalem, there were wars in the surrounding regions all about. There were Jewish populations in other cities, and they started having uprisings, trying to rebel against the Romans. And they were routinely slaughtered in the tens of thousands. Uh, One example, in the city of Alexandria... In a single uprising, reports are upwards of 50,000 Jews being slaughtered in that uprising. In another city of Caesarea, reports of another 20,000 being slaughtered in an uprising. The people in Jerusalem would have been constantly hearing all these reports and rumours of wars and uprising in the surrounding regions. And then the Romans came upon Jerusalem. They laid siege to the city, and when they started laying siege, the food supply was cut off. And so there was a devastating famine within the city, and it was absolutely brutal. Have a look at verse 19 to describe how brutal this situation really was. Jesus describes the horrors that would come upon Jerusalem as days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Now, when you read some of the descriptions of what took place, yeah, that description makes sense. It was brutal. The famine was awful, and the slaughter at the hands of the Romans was awful. Now, the famine in the city was so horrific. There's reports of one woman. She's depicted in the image here. The story was that this woman was so desperate in the famine that she slaughtered and roasted and ate her own baby son. Gross. And of course, other people around the area, when they could smell roasting meat, came running to her house saying, where did you find food? Please share it with us. Until she revealed what it was. And they left traumatized and horrified. The soldiers eventually broke into the city of Jerusalem. And when they got in, they went round house to house with the intention of slaughtering every person they could find. 
but found frequently in house after house that all the inhabitants were already dead because of the famine. But whoever they found who had survived, and there were many of them, they then slaughtered ruthlessly. And it was women and children and the elderly without mercy. And the reports say that so many people were slaughtered that there were rivers of blood flowing through the streets. The soldiers went around burning all of the buildings, but there was so much blood in the city that some of the flames were quenched. And there were so many dead bodies that the soldiers piled them up in the streets as blockades to block the way of people who would escape. This is absolutely brutal. And all this happens at a time when Jerusalem was at its peak population. It's estimated that there were three million Jews inside the city who had all gathered in there to celebrate the Passover when the Romans then surrounded and attacked. So in terms of the percentage of the Jewish population that was killed, it's possible that the number exceeded that of the Holocaust of World War II. Uh, It's very hard to verify that statistic. But in terms of what it meant for the nation of Israel, in terms of the sheer number of people killed, the brutality in which they were killed, and what it meant for them to lose the temple and to lose their identity as God's people, this was and remains the most devastating event in the history of the Jews, arguably even worse than the Holocaust. Well, we still have a few more predictions. I'm going to move through these last ones at a much faster pace. Prediction number three is that family members will kill one another. Come down to verse number 12. In verse 12, Jesus says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against their parents and put them to death. Now, the slaughter at the hand of the Romans already sounds brutal enough. But during the siege, the Jews within Jerusalem took to killing each other. Because of the famine, they would kill each other over a scrap of food. But there was also a more deliberate and systematic killing that went on. See, while the Romans were sieging the city, they made an offer. They said, anyone who surrenders and comes out to us, we promise safety. We won't kill you. But the Jews inside, for anybody who tries to leave and go out to the Romans, they are a traitor. They are failing to trust in God to deliver us. And they are choosing foreign idols instead of the true and living God. And so there were Jewish leaders inside the city who were murdering fellow Jews who were trying to escape. And there are reports of multitudes of Jews who were killed by their own people, by their own family members. And that is exactly what Jesus predicted. Well, prediction number four. In verse 14, we read about this abomination that causes desolation. Let me read you from verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, this phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, that would have been well understood by Jews of the day because of another incident that had taken place 200 years earlier. 200 years earlier, Israel was conquered by another superpower, uh, a Greek empire, and a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple to desecrate it 
and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Uh, This was an event that was prophesied in the book of Daniel in chapters 11 and 12. Jesus is now saying, remember that event. It's about to happen again. And it did. When the Romans took the city, their general, a guy by the name of Titus, went into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the temple, which normally nobody was ever allowed to enter. And the Romans set up their Roman standards, which included a statue of an eagle that was worshipped. Basically, it's an idol. They set them up in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then with the huge number of dead bodies of people who were slaughtered, as you can see in the picture, they made this huge pile of human bodies on top of the altar that was in front of the temple to desecrate it. Exactly as Jesus predicted. Well, fifth and final. We'll think back to the beginning of our passage and Jesus' initial prediction that all these buildings will be thrown down, not one stone will be left upon another. When the Romans broke into the city of Israel, their general, Titus, he was so, so impressed by the magnificence of the temple building that he gave very strict orders to his soldiers, do not harm this building. We want to keep it for the glory and honour of the Roman Empire. But the soldiers disobeyed his orders and they set the temple on fire anyway. And once the temple was on fire, well, there's no point preserving the rest of the outer structures, so they burnt all of those as well. And once it was all burned, there was nothing worth keeping. And so they literally dismantled everything. No stone was left upon another. They dismantled the temple, they dismantled the entire city and the city walls, piece by piece, stone by stone, And so the historian Josephus tells us that someone who passed by would not be able to tell that that place had even ever been inhabited. Now, I've kind of, at this point, I've realised I've I've cherry-picked a number of different observations. There is so much more in Mark 13 that we just don't have time to get to. But I hope that with what we have covered, you see the picture. Jesus has pronounced the judgment of God upon Israel and its temple, and it has happened exactly as Jesus predicted. So I want to finish now by asking, what does all of this mean for us? Uh, As Christians in the 21st century, what can we take away from this tragic story? Well, firstly, at one level, we can take away the point that Jesus was a true prophet. Of course, he's more than a prophet, but... Prophecy is one thing Jesus did do, and it was true. He staked his credibility upon these events happening within that generation, and they did. So that should give us confidence that Jesus really was sent from God. But I think there's a bigger take-home point for us. And that's this. See, as 21st century Christians, it's important for us to know what is our place within the bigger narrative of world history. In order to understand our place in the world and the worlds that we live in, we need to understand where have we come from in the past and where are things going towards in the future? Where's it all heading? So 
<clears throat> coming out of Mark 13, I'm not going to give you a shopping list of things to go and do, uh, application points. Instead, I hope you can see some of the things that God has done in our past, in our story, so that you can rightly understand our position in the present. The destruction of Jerusalem, which Jesus foretold, I think is one of the most significant moments in the history of God and his dealings with the world. Because up until this moment, all of God's dealings with the world was centered upon this one nation, the nation of Israel. But now, a major, major shift has taken place. See, before Jesus came, if you wanted to know God, you basically had to become a Jew. You had to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. But now, that old way has been destroyed, and we have been given a new way. See, Israel no longer occupies this special position as the chosen people of God. See, now, that honour has been given to us, to people of every nation. That is, for everyone who will put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him as the true Messiah, the true fulfilment of God's promises, we now get to be the true people of God without living under the old covenant. Let me close now in prayer and we'll finish up. Heavenly Father, we are sobered by the brutal events that have taken place. Father, please help us to understand rightly our place in the history of the world and help us to understand what it really means for us now to be your people. Father, please help us as we continue to wrestle with these very difficult and gruesome stories. And Father, I pray that you would continue to sustain us in our faith and keep us safe from the judgment that is yet to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.